everyone. If you're thriving in your life and looking for a way to be 10% happier or 1% more productive, we may not be the podcast for you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, stressed, and you're struggling and looking for help in your daily dance with suffering, welcome home. This podcast was made for you. We hope you'll join us as we share ways that you can practice bringing awareness to your inner world throughout your daily moments. We hope to point you toward the process of learning how to be more self-aware and compassionate toward yourself, moment by moment. And as Claudio likes to say, there are a lot of moments in our lives, aren't there? Why do we recommend that you do this? So you can more carefully step into an intentional and patient role of caring for your own mental health and crafting a journey of healing. If you're a longtime listener, thank you for hanging in there with us as we continue to find new ways to uncover the pathways that exist inside of us. Pathways that lead us to the best version of ourselves. Today, Claudio and I launched the fourth season of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. We'll be interviewing mindfulness practitioners from all walks of life with the goal of showcasing their favorite ways to practice mindfulness off the cushion. Our hope is that you'll be able to integrate some of these skills in your own practice. Our first guest, is a former teacher who discovered a way to bring peace to her classroom. Her name is Katrina Gleisberg, and she is a mindfulness educator, coach, and meditation creator. After teaching special education, third and fourth grades, and adult English language learners, she noticed a striking commonality. Students of drastically different backgrounds and ages showed greater attention, calm, collaboration, and ability to take on challenges after short mindfulness practices. She is now on a mission to spread mindfulness and holistic wellness everywhere she goes. So are you ready? Cue the music and let's get into it. And welcome to season four of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. Here we go. Ooh, happy to be here. (laughs) So Katrina, give us a little bit of color and context around who you are and why you think you might be here. Just to sort of set the stage, we do eventually want to get to the point where we're talking about the different ways that you practice Mindfulness Off the Cushion. I'm going to cheat here and look at your bio and just read the first sentence, which is, you are a mindfulness educator, coach, and meditation creator. Why don't you put some meat on those bones for us? Oh, great question. So I come from a teaching background of teaching elementary education, but it was literally that background that led me to mindfulness and the realization that mindfulness is what teachers and students need before we can take in other information. Our nervous systems need to be 
regulated before we can be at our best to take in any other academic information. And so I teach mindfulness. I have also gone from elementary to teach adults and have taught it more in a coaching type of context where I coach one-on-one for people who are wanting to know how to personalize mindfulness more into their everyday lives. And then I feel like all of this came together kind of naturally because creating meditations, I realized that a lot of meditations that are out there, sometimes it's hard for people to find personalized ones. Or if I'm teaching children, maybe it's hard to find meditations that have child-friendly language. Or maybe with some adults, they've said, you know, I like this kind of practice, but I want a shorter version that I can do during my lunch break. And so that just kind of led me naturally to create my own meditations to meet whatever needs of whoever I was working with. That sounds beautiful right there. I love the path that you that you kind of taking right there. And I think that in today's modern place, you kind of have to adapt to the client, adapt to the customer, adapt to what people are needing. And being adaptable in that regard is and being flexible, that's the way to uh, present this material. I'm curious to know, Katrina, it's like you said that you, you, you know, you start off with, with the statement that we all need mindfulness, even before we're in the classroom, we all need mindfulness, right? So it seems, it sounds like mindfulness is this framework that we can use or utilize for all education. And I would actually say, even outside of education, right? We can practice mindfulness when we're brushing our teeth or washing the dishes or making the bed. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that mindfulness is available to us all, no matter where we are, free of charge. And in the education setting, something that I noticed is that, and just a little bit of background with education here, I was first teaching special education. Then I was teaching elementary general ed classroom. I was teaching third grade and fourth grade. And then I was working on my master's in ESL and teaching English language learners. So those are the different contexts with elementary age students where I first witnessed the power of mindfulness. So something that I noticed is if we are in such a state of freaking out, We're not in that state of here's the best environment in which to learn and to process information. So my main story when I think of mindfulness coming into my life, I believe it was my fourth year of teaching elementary school. The principal that we had decided to use funds to hire an outside behavior consultant to give this teacher support on classroom management type things, especially extreme behaviors. So this behavior consultant not only did trainings at staff development days and after school meetings, but she went into each teacher's classroom individually to model a strategy she called TAPS, which stood for Total and Perfect Silence. Now, when I was learning TAPS, I don't remember ever hearing the word mindfulness. 
This was not until years later when I actually reached out about it because that this strategy changed my teaching life. And, and I emailed her years later when I was teaching in Athens, Greece to say, uh, what was that? Because this has changed my teaching and people are asking about it. So this behavior consultant models this strategy called TAPS. Now, she says that it stands for total and perfect silence. I will say I don't love the word perfect because my own journey as a recovering perfectionist, recovering workaholic, et cetera, my own mindfulness has led me to be more compassionate with all of the difficulties and flaws and failures or perceived failures that I observe. But this strategy, just to give this to you in a nutshell, if I'm setting the scene and for the average teacher, when there's a transition time, let's take coming in from recess. You have students who are arguing about the score of a kickball game. You are trying to get a reading lesson started and kids are trying to find their reading book. Somebody can't find their book. Somebody can't find their favorite eraser. And so they're blaming so-and-so or they're looking around frantically. You have... Some other kid who has decided that he's not going to come back from the bathroom on time. You have like all of these crazy things going on and and people trying to tell me about them as I'm trying to get the lessons technology ready when something with the smart board is not working. And so I'm already frazzled inside. My nervous system's not regulated. So do you think I'm really giving anybody my full attention or my task? (laughs) No, there's like, there's so much going on. So if anything, I would find myself, uh uh-huh, uh-huh to one of these kids without fully mindfully listening to them. So once this behavior consultant came in to teach the strategy TAPS, she taught it for, this is how it looks like if you're sitting on the carpet working together. This is how it looks like if you're sitting at your desk. This is how it looks like standing in line. So basically, if somebody, if a teacher yells taps, everybody freezes and they buckle their hands, like cross their fingers and they start to breathe. If it feels right for them, they close their eyes and we just take those moments to be in the present moment and Nobody else is talking. And what I would realize is in those moments of taps, when everything is still and quiet, that I could focus on just one thing. Maybe it was my own nervous system for the first few seconds. And then maybe it's the technology. And then once I get the technology figured out and you know, I have everybody open up their eyes, all of a sudden, it's almost like that moment of being in the present moment has helped the students gain perspective. So it seems like they're no longer worrying about the score of the kickball game or anything else because they're in the present moment and it has brought them some calm. So once they're in that state, they are able to take on challenges. They are able to, you know, gain some perspective and maybe ask more politely for what they need or whatever it might be. So, you know, now the mindfulness I use has a little bit of a variation of some things I didn't know when I first taught TAPS. 
and this was 10 plus years ago. Like, for example, I have more training in recent years about trauma-informed mindfulness. So we would never say that everyone has to close their eyes if that doesn't feel comfortable for them. You know, I might make some changes to it. But the fact that that's where my mindfulness background came from, I am so, 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 so grateful for because I use that in the public school where I was teaching in Nebraska. And then I moved to Athens, Greece, where I was teaching at an international school, teaching English language learners that came from 16 different countries and came to my class with no English. And this is scary for them. This is scary that they can't, they, they, they don't even know the words to say my name is, or I need to go to the bathroom or whatever. And so if I had little, little ones, like first graders, let's say, they would come into the room None of them speaking English, and some of these are things that would never fly (laughs) in a U.S. school, but the amount of students that I had that didn't speak English without having other adult support. And you might have kids who are, I, I actually did have this one of my first days with first graders. I had kids who automatically crawled under desks, who opened up glue sticks and started eating them, kid who's tried to leave the classroom and all in the middle of me trying to corral them, a child bit me on the arm and I yelled out a big ow. And at that moment, I knew that because they're not understanding anything from my mouth, they don't understand English. What I did know is that if I sit down and I model all of the steps of this taps, they can see and follow this process. They can see me breathing. And then once they see that I'm regulated, that gives them permission to do, to do the same. And actually my, my training in the mindful schools, mindfulness says first and foremost, that the most impactful thing a teacher can do in a classroom is have a ner- uh, regulated nervous system themselves. So that's kind of the background where I came from. So then when I had, you know, four different first grade teachers dropping off their students to my classroom, and then they would come pick them up and they would see things. I kept getting all these comments such as, how'd you get so-and-so to sit still? How'd you get so-and-so to actually write something for you? How did you get them to work with another student? How did you, all of these things. And apparently word got to my principal because eventually she asked me, she said, I'm hearing things about what your students are doing that they're not doing in other classrooms. Can you teach all the other teachers how to do this? And then eventually it was, can you model this at a school-wide assembly? Yeah. Amazing. Let's go back to the classroom. I'm trying to imagine how you introduced this idea to the students. I hear you saying modeling is super important, but take us back to like day one. How do you introduce the idea in, in such a way that that the students might think, oh yes, I want that or I want to do that? Honestly, when I think to that day, that first day with the first graders in that brand new school with very different expectations and things than what I was used to in U.S. schools. I think of how chaotic it was. And I don't think that I was in the present moment because I think that I was kind of, I was so frazzled. 
but it was almost like this intuitive knowing of, I have a tool and I know that it works. And so it honestly just took me the knowing to close the door so they can't run out (laughs) (laughs) and sit in a chair and model. And then you always try with the lowest hanging fruit, right? The kids that are already looking for that structure. And I want to follow her directions because eventually the other kids will, they will catch on. So it's me. So it's like in, you know, using these nonverbals to communicate like, Hey, come over here, sit with me. And I had some sitting around me. Okay. And modeling the buckling of the hands, the breathing, And then for some of the students who maybe weren't catching on, it's like standing up, moving over by them, gesturing for them, hey, come join me. And eventually we're all doing this. Eventually, because I did tell my principal about, hey, this is a lot of students for such a small space without having other adult support, I did end up getting an assistant who could help. So that took mindfulness to be an advocate for myself but it did feel very chaotic. And I feel like the thing that I needed to remember the most was to be compassionate with myself and not compare myself to this is the perfect ideal, but hey, this class today went better than it did yesterday. And I'm sure, you know, what I'm hearing as well, the moment that you pause and you embody this pause the moment that you sit and you embody this sit, the moment, the moment that you clasp your hands and embody a clasping, a coming together of two hands, the moment that you pause and and just like practice a breathing exercise and embody this breathing exercise, that can't help but permeate itself. And I imagine that in a what it sounds to be like a pretty stressful environment of having, I imagine, way too many students for just one person, students that have experienced trauma themselves, students that are in a completely new school, new country, new language. You can't communicate very much verbally, but you can't communicate non-verbally. And something as simple as sitting and breathing, that is like a hugely powerful non-verbal you that you're giving there. Absolutely. And I, it is amazing. I've heard all kinds of statistics about how our communication is more about the nonverbals, but it's, it's like, this was a perfect example of that in a situation where the students don't have the language. And I feel like teachers and a lot of caregivers or anyone who's passionate about their work, you just learn to be resourceful with what do I have in this moment to help the situation. So what's like the, you know, for the all parents listening out there, all teachers listening out there, right? What's your, your one sentence nugget to them? You actually said it. You said it with the pause. That it's, it's always okay to take a pause. And that's something that I use with students. I use with adults. I'm a really big fan of Orin J. Sofer, who is in the mindfulness world. He writes and speaks a lot about mindful communication. And that's actually when I went to a retreat of his, that's what he says. First and foremost, the most powerful thing you can do 
is take a pause. And so sometimes what I do with taking that pause is if other people don't understand what I'm doing, because that a lot of times in our society seems weird of why is she stopping all of a sudden? Is she like, is she confused? Is she having a breakdown? Is, you know, but I'll explain like, I need a moment for a mindful pause. And I, I will literally do things like put one hand on my heart and another hand on my belly and check in with myself. And I feel like that's what I often do with children. Mindfulness 101 is just check in with yourself. How are you feeling? And we might use a tool such as the mood meter, which I absolutely love. And then we might do something such as asking them, okay, you feel this way? How do you know? And therefore, it brings in the somatic experience of, okay, if I'm angry, then I'm going to pay attention to what's going on in my body that lets me know I'm angry. Maybe my face is getting warm. Maybe my fists are clenched. Maybe I notice my heart rate going faster. Maybe I notice a knot in my stomach, whatever it may be. And then knowing that when we take that pause... It's in that moment, we take our control back. And that's making me think of the, the Victor Frankl quote, between stim, stimulus and response, there is that space. And, and there is so much power and freedom in that space. So when I'm taking that pause, even if I just take 10 seconds, it helps me notice what's going on in my own body and how am I feeling. And that way I'm thinking about the physical sensations instead of letting the emotions spiral and getting stuck on, as a lot of times I might do, if I'm not being mindful, I'm thinking of all the things that are going wrong and all the previous things that this person did that irritated me. And then it gets into this bigger thing. And then because I didn't take that pause, then I end up maybe snapping at someone or saying mm -hmm. something that I might regret. So that sounds so simple. There's so much power in it. If I just take that pause... It gives me that wisdom afterwards to make the more skillful response. It makes me think that regardless of the subject that you're teaching in this situation, you're really teaching them something that's honestly, I believe, far more important. And it makes me think about the impact that you're having on your students' lives. Do you, by any chance, happen to know? Has any of your students come back to you and thanked you for that, you know, somewhat seemingly small lesson that you've transferred to them? You know, I've heard things the like with the students that I've taught about when they've used it in other situations outside my classroom, such as I did that thing you taught me and I decided not to hit my brother. Or I did that thing and I realized, I stopped to breathe and I realized that I could say no. And I feel like as a teacher, that's one of the most gratifying things is to know that something that you taught your student, they're not only remembering it, but they're able to apply it into their everyday lives outside of the classroom. I mean, gosh, to tie in with your whole thing of mindfulness off the cushion, that's what it is. That's informal mindfulness right then and there, those spontaneous things that come up. And I'm able to take that pause and maybe pay attention to what's going on in my body before I do that thing I used to do, such as, I don't know, hit my brother or snap at someone or yell or scream 
that's what mindfulness is all about. Mindfulness Off the Cushion is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today. So I hear like these like, you know, self-regulation skills, right? First, we, you know, through the mindfulness, they they get to know about themselves. So before self-regulation comes to self-awareness, right? And then once they can begin to acknowledge and identify what they're feeling, begin to put words and descriptions and vocabulary around it, they can begin to then be more cognizant of the experience as it's arising and also have the greater flexibility to like change their response to it. So that's like the regulation part, right? Through either like self-soothing or through just perspective shifting, right? But it doesn't stop there because like like the examples that you're given, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that that kiddo telling you, you know, I stopped me from hitting my brother. It's now going from like the self to like relationships. Right. So it's like the kid in that moment was able to like master self-awareness, self-regulation, and then healthy relationship buildings, healthy relationship skills. Yes. That's like talk about a trifecta, right? Like package that up and sell it and you'll be a millionaire. Right. (laughs) What this is making me think of is I referenced the mood meter a few minutes back, and that's a tool created by Mark Brackett. So he wrote this book called Permission to Feel. I recommend that for any teacher. And so Mark Brackett is at, is it Yale or Harvard? Uh, Obviously, I I need to have this book in front of me. I literally just went to a seminar with him last month in Omaha, Nebraska. But he is the director of the Emotional Intelligence Center. And so he created these tools that teachers use now in many different states. I know that he said something like in New York, there's, is it 800 schools that use his protocol? So he uses this mood meter. And when I teach online, I pull up a screen that has an image of the mood meter. When I teach in person, I have an in-person copy of the mood meter. There are middle schools where I taught mindfulness, where they have a mood meter in every single middle school classroom. And so the mood meter is four different colored quadrants. And so the bottom axis is about level of pleasantness. So are you feeling more pleasant or unpleasant right now? And then going up the axis is what is your energy level? So you using those two descriptors, you can put yourself in one of the four quadrants. So if you are feeling high pleasant and high energy, you're in this yellow quadrant where there are emotion words such as excited. And, you know, if I'm feeling unpleasant and low energy, I would be in the blue quadrant where it's more like depressed or down or whatever it may be. And I love that, first of all, there's that image and the kids get so used to it that sometimes they may not be able 
to come up with the language for what they're feeling, but they know I'm feeling red right now. And so I know, okay, that's high energy and that's unpleasant. So they might be really angry or frustrated right now. And so it normalizes talking about emotions. It makes it easier. And for little, little children who don't know these words yet, or that can't read these words, there's little emojis on them to help them know, okay, that's what this one means. That's what this one means. Also, I liked the fact that it ties in mindfulness beautifully and that all emotions are part of the human experience. Because I think so many of us feel shame that I feel angry or I feel jealous or I feel da-da-da-da. I shouldn't feel bad emotions. Well, I don't even like calling them bad emotions. They might feel unpleasant, but I feel like by naming them as bad or negative, then you're making it seem like, oh, it's wrong to feel this way instead of bringing in the common humanity of humans feel this. This is part of the human experience. That's so beautiful. It normalizes it. Then this is where social and emotional learning comes in, right? Can you speak to that for us a little bit? Yes. So someone like Mark Brackett would talk about how, hey, mindfulness is part of this. So they it, it ties in beautifully. So social emotional learning, some in some schools, like in the, the school where I taught in Nebraska, had a guidance counselor that came in, I think it was it was maybe once every week or And then eventually it was once every 10 days. So not super often, but at least it was considered a class of, hey, we can talk about certain issues that we see in this grade level. We can talk about self-control. We can talk about decision-making. We can talk about iMessages. I wish social-emotional learning would have been a course for me to take as a child. This is why I'm so, I'm so, 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 so passionate about this is knowing me as a child. And I was very, very fortunate in that I had two very loving parents who helped me with my homework and provided lots of opportunities for me. But I was also a very anxious, self-conscious shy child who moved around a lot in a, in a military family who had to start over in new places where I was the new kid. And so you think of no matter what the child is or no, ma- no matter what their experience of trauma is, if you can't express that, then it gets stored in the body and that affects their way of learning, their way of relating to the world, their relationships, their everything. If they don't have the language to talk about their feelings or to talk about their needs, because I, even though I was luck, like I said, fortunate in a lot of regards, I was the child who, if my sister said something demeaning under her breath, like normal kid stuff, I'd be the first one to scream or I'd be the first one to scratch her or whatever else. And then I'd get in trouble. And then I was living in this world of, it's not fair because I didn't have the language of this is how I'm feeling. And these are my unmet needs. So there's definitely a, a, a lot of buzz, not a lot of buzz. This, throughout the last 20 years, 30 years, I think the Castle Foundation is like a big foundation that's 
do an immense amount of research on social emotional learning, trying to uh, disseminate a lot of great research. There's, you know, a lot of schools that, that are integrating it into the curriculum. And, you know, so, so much of the social emotional learning in the classroom is it's reinforced not just in the classroom, but in the culture of the school itself. So it's not just limited to the classroom, not just limited to the teacher that's teaching it in the moment, but like how are the administration, how how does the administration in the school respond to it through their policies? How does the town respond to it within the school? So, you know, there's the micro and then there's the macro in that regard, right? For those of you that that are maybe have heard social emotional learning, right? But don't really know the, there's various frameworks out there, but the Castle Five tends to be a commonly uh, referenced one. And just so you know, the Castle Five are self-awareness, self-regulation, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. So those are the five things that encompass social emotional learning within the framework of the castle framework. And what I'm hearing is like, wouldn't it be great to have learned this when we were children? Yes. Because my goodness, we, I have to say like in, in high school, I, I thought there were some teachers that were dropping this without me even knowing it, but most of us did not have that privilege. What's the ideal age, Katrina, in your opinion, I'm assuming it's the sooner the better, but what is, you know, if you could pick the right, you know, one grade, what is the ideal grade to really roll this out in your classroom? Like you said, as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I know that the, the mood meter version with the little emojis is used in kindergarten and preschool classrooms. I was already thinking I'm going to be, you know, visiting my niece here shortly of Hmm. How can I start using this with her? She doesn't even talk yet, but I, I'm just, I love the idea of first, there are things that parents can do to model. First of all, the pause and then saying how they're feeling of, okay. So if, if the child's having the temper tantrum, and I, I feel like for those of you who know, Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff, who's the pioneer of mindful self-compassion. She tells this amazing story. And she's also someone who I would recommend for any teacher, read her self-compassion book. It made more of a difference in my life than any other book I've read, both as a teacher and just as a human. She tells this story of, she has a son with autism and they were on this international flight. And her son was about five years old at the time. And the whole plane is quiet and people are trying to sleep. And her son has this huge screaming temper tantrum. And she is feeling just absolutely mortified. She tries to take the child back to the bathroom. Of course, there's no empty bathroom. She she ends up just sitting with him. And because if she gets more frustrated, she knows as a person who does lots and lots and lots of research on self-compassion. She knows that if she were to react more, it would just make him react more. So she decides to just start, you know, rocking him and giving, giving herself, giving herself the self-compassion and putting her hands on her heart and soothing herself. And suddenly that's what calmed him down. So even though she was mortified and in this 
this position where she knew that all these people were looking at her, you know, with eyes like daggers. She knew in that moment, the first thing that I can do is to give myself the self-compassion. So even if a child isn't even yet speaking or doesn't have the language to do whatever, if they see you pause and put your hand over your heart and your belly or wherever feels soothing for you, knowing that that releases oxytocin, the bonding hormone, you can start pairing that action, that nonverbal action with words of, I'm feeling this way right now, or any any of the words that help give you self-compassion of, oh, may I be a kind friend to myself, or it's okay to feel this way right now, or this is what it is right now. And again, just modeling, this is how I can soothe myself so that I don't react to the other person. Do me a favor, Katrina, and bring the word mindfulness into this conversation. And here's why I asked the question. Think of someone who's struggling perhaps to connect the dots between why are these guys talking about emotions and emotional intelligence or emotional maturity? What does that have to do with mindfulness? Can you connect those two dots for us? Yes. I'm really glad you asked that to to bring us back to the basics. So if mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment, I like to follow that up next with, well, how do we pay attention? Well, we can bring our attention to one or more of the five senses, our thoughts or our emotions. So it's as simple as that. So if I want to bring my, if I'm having a hard time and I bring my attention to the sensation of my heartbeat, or I bring my attention to the softness of something comforting or the warmth of my cup of tea. And I'm doing that without judgment. That is mindfulness right there, right? It's always available to us. So again, I can bring my attention to one or more of my five senses, my thoughts, or my emotions. So that is what brings us freedom and that pause is what do I do when I take that pause? Ah, I find an anchor. So the anchor is wherever I'm putting my attention on in that moment, what works for me. So a lot of times the breath is used, but for a lot of us that could be triggering, especially if we are feeling a really, really strong emotion. So that's why sometimes I like to bring it to something external like the cup or with a a child, it, it might be a I don't know, a stuffed animal or something where they're bringing their attention to the sensation of, oh, how does that feel? Oh, it's soft. It's smooth. Okay. So just using these things that we naturally have to our own benefit. That's beautiful. Thank you for doing that. And it's it's so serendipitous as well. We just spent season three with an MBSR instructor, Gita Kalagi. And I don't know if she coined the term. I don't know if this is just her way of expressing mindfulness, but it truly did resonate with me. And she just said, you know, simply ask yourself the question, you know, can you sit with yourself and have a cup of tea? Right. I'm like, oh my gosh, at the time, this was only two or three months ago when we interviewed her. I'm like, I, I don't think I can. (laughs) I really don't. So Thank you for bringing it back to the cup of tea. And I also love that you're bringing up what I I like to introduce as one of the 
biggest misconceptions of mindfulness is that people think in order to practice mindfulness, I have to be completely calm and completely happy and have my head clear of thoughts. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, ha, ha, ha. you know, that's, that's a misconception as you see, like in these magazines and things, somebody sitting on a mountaintop looking completely peaceful, or they're in this, you know, butterfly garden with the waterfall and everything seems completely at ease. And it's like something about mindfulness. Oh, and so when, and when I teach adult classes, this is something we teach in the very, very, very first class is that there are two wings of mindfulness. I feel like one gets all the attention and one gets not so much, but that's the one that's made the biggest difference in my life. So the first wing is that clear seeing. And so a lot of people hear about these amazing benefits of mindfulness and there are so many, but these amazing benefits of mindfulness include increased focus and decreased reactivity. So yes, there is the wing of clear seeing. There's also the other wing of mindfulness, which is the compassion, which is how we're paying attention is just as important as paying attention. Are we paying attention in a way that is kind and compassionate and non-judgmental and curious? Are we speaking to ourselves in the way that we would speak to a friend? And so that's that's what brings in the whole sector of mindful self-compassion, which has been the most impactful area of mindfulness for me personally. So can you share with us specific ways that you practice mindful self-compassion with yourself in the moment? Is it a daily practice? Is it a, is it a, a formal 5, 10, 20 minute meditation that you practice? Or is it that and also like little sprinklings of self-compassion throughout the day? What, what yes. is what? Yeah. I love how you said little sprinklings because <laughs> it is happening throughout my entire day, throughout my entire day. So one of the things that Dr. Kristen Neff, the pioneer of mindful self-compassion talks about is having a mindful self-compassion mantra that touches on the three components of mindful self-compassion, which is first of all, mindfulness, secondly, common humanity of remembering that I'm not the only one that feels this way. My emotions are part of the human experience. And then the third part is the self-kindness. So, so wait, 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 what are the, the three parts again? Are So the first one is mindfulness. The second one is common humanity. And the third one is self-kindness. And so as I'm going about my day and little, I'll, I'll give you an example with little, little things where I would normally beat myself up about. So if I do, if I make a mistake and I spill something or I say something I wish I wouldn't have said, or I lock my keys in my car, which I've done multiple times, instead of beating myself up and I can't believe I did that, what's wrong with me, those kinds of statements, it's putting my hand on my heart or hand on my belly and telling myself, okay, I am human. Humans make mistakes. And literally a few months ago, when I locked my keys in my car for the, I don't know, at least fifth time in my life, I was pacing the parking lot waiting for AAA to come. And I was saying those statements to myself. 
of, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who's ever made a mistake. I'm not the only person who's ever left my keys in my car. May I be, and I was bringing in heartfulness, which is also known as loving kindness of all these heartfulness wishes of, may I be safe? May I be any, anything that was coming to mind? May I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I feel connected? May I feel supported? And actually those kinds of heartfulness statements are probably the most common mindfulness things I do throughout my day because it happens all day long. I'm on my morning walk and I pass the middle school students that are standing at the bus stop. And there's a group of nine of them who are standing on the corner and none of them are talking to each other. They're all either looking down or looking at their phones. And I'm thinking to myself, all this compassion of knowing how difficult it was to be a middle school student. And I am across the street just wishing them, may you be at peace. May you feel supported. May you feel fully resourced. All of these things, because that's something that we can do in heartfulness. It's not the same as an affirmation or it's not the same as expecting a specific outcome. It's more about what is that felt sense of what I'm feeling as I'm wishing that. And it's something that I can do in the moment. I, you know, would be a creeper if I went up to all these kids maybe and whatever said, whatever, but I can from across the street as I pass them. And I don't know what else to do because I'm feeling compassion for them. I can wish them things. And I do the same thing as I'm driving and there's an angry driver who's doing something unsafe. Instead of whatever profanity flying out of my mouth, it's like, oh, may you be safe. (laughs) May you be alert. May you be at peace. And then I remember to wish those same things for myself. May I be at peace. May I be alert. Right. So you didn't run across the street and introduce them to mindfulness, the middle schoolers. I guess that does qualify as a creeper, huh? (laughs) I mean, I do teach middle school students and I do love the age group, but I I have never like directly bothered the middle school. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. (laughs) What I hear is like, can we, I don't, can we relate to these imperfections of being a human with greater acceptance, compassion, kindness, you know, just like not being a jerk to yourself. Right. It's like in the moment that we do, and that's like your, you know, the, like mindfulness off the cushion, right? Like that's like what, what we can practice 23 hours and, you know, 30 minutes, whatever you're not, the 30 minutes that you're meditating, right? Or the 10 minutes that you're meditating formally, there's still 23 hours and 50 minutes in the day. And that's what you can be practiced throughout the day the loving kindness. And that's what I'm saying. Imagine, imagine, right. If like you could practice that throughout your waking day, what we practice, we get good at, right? Like what if you could practice that kind of mindset and that kind of heart felt sense that that would be beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so therapist, right? I just became a licensed therapist. So it's like one thing that I'm having to confront with myself is like being imperfect. Like I obviously like, <laughs> let me rephrase, let me rephrase that. I understand that I am not perfect, but like as a therapist, like you have put a lot of pressure in yourself to want to say the right thing at the right time to a client or a patient that is expressing their innermost being or suffering. So like, 
I was like contemplating, like, I am, I am a human, therefore I am imperfect. Therefore, I am an imperfect therapist. And in this imperfection as a therapist, I may be able to become the perfect therapist for the imperfect patient. So it's like approaching that sense of like wanting to say the right thing, be perfect in big old air quotes for those of you that can't see my fingers, approaching that with like, it's okay to be imperfect. And in that imperfection, you can be perfect for for somebody else. That's been like my my go-to mantra, playing around with that. I love that, that you're bringing in the humanity. And then I also find when I use that expression to like, let's say I'm, I'm teaching a group of people and I express to them, I need a moment to process this or I'm not understanding blank or when I'm vulnerable myself, I love how it invites vulnerability back and it invites us all to be more open. And that's what connects us as humans. And we're bringing in that, that common humanity aspect. Absolutely. I think we could all be a little more vulnerable in our lives. Let me ask you this question as we start to wrap up here, Katrina. Do you have a formal meditation practice? And if so, what do you feel like that does for you? How do you feel like that helps you throughout the day? So I do have a formal practice. And in general, I practice in the morning before I do anything else. My goal is, and if we're talking about imperfection here, my goal is to have that in where I'm addressing my internal landscape before I address the external landscape. So meaning before I look at my email and before I do all these other things with the external world so that I'm checking in with myself first and connecting to myself. So even if I don't practice first thing in the morning, I do it later in the day, I give myself some grace or Also, the knowing that it doesn't have to be a perfect amount of time, even though I typically like to do 45 minutes, it's like, okay, well, sometimes there's not time for that. But if there's time for two minutes, there's so much benefit in having two minutes. So some of the benefits for me personally is I get to set an intention and I feel like that intention helps give me some some what of a path for the day. And so often an intention for me will be one, one or more of the attitudes of mindfulness. So earlier we were talking about non-striving, how that was a, a difficult, that can be a difficult attitude of mindfulness for us to grasp, especially in our uh, culture where we're taught, you know, always be improving and whatever. So it might be for non-striving. It might be for acceptance. Sometimes it maybe it's not an attitude of mindfulness, but I can tie it into an attitude of mindfulness. Maybe my intention for that day is just connection or joy. And then I feel like it helps me be more aware of looking for moments of joy or things that bring me joy or opportunities. So I like the intention setting. I also feel like it helps me feel more settled or grounded or more peace within myself. It is also a time for me to give myself the self-compassion so I can acknowledge whatever emotions are there. I could acknowledge because a lot of times I'll sit and it's like, oh, this same painful memory keeps coming up. And instead of pushing that away, it's the exercise of, okay, this is anger or this is whatever, and it's okay to feel this way. And can I feel, can I allow myself to feel the feels 
right now so that I can navigate through it and not have it fester. It feels like a relief to allow myself the time to just be and not be stuck in all of the doing. That just feels amazing. There's a phrase that I use a lot when I do meditations, which is right now in this moment, you have nowhere else you need to be, nothing else you need to do. And I might ask questions such as, can you allow yourself to receive this, whatever it is, receive this breath, receive this moment of connection or whatever it is for you. And so it is, it's like a mental workout for me where I allow myself to feel the feels. I allow myself to have compassion and to give myself what I need. So in some of these giving and receiving compassion meditations, it's like, oh, breathe in what you need. So maybe I need support. Maybe I need clarity, healing, whatever. Allow It's, it's, it's the time to allow myself to receive and to remember that there's balance because for many teachers, especially... And I'm sure it's like this. I've heard this. I've heard this from therapists. I've heard this from social workers. A lot of people in caregiving roles, they're really, really, really good at giving to others. And it's not as easy or natural to give back to ourselves. But we, you know, like we said before, if we can attend to our own nervous systems, we can best be there for others. So we get to fill our own cup first. And so I feel like it's very, my own practice is restorative, compassionate, and not only that, so I I might do like a silent guided or a silent practice in the morning, but often in the afternoons, especially when I'm done teaching, I'll lie on the floor for a body scan. And then if, if it's maybe too difficult for me to be still and silent with myself. I might put on a guided meditation. I love the app Insight Timer and I love doing body scans and I just allow myself to receive the gifts of the the teachers on that app who are telling me these beautiful things. Katrina, thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. If you have connected with one of our listeners and they want to reach out to you and learn more from you, learn more about you. How can they do that? So anyone can send me a message on the platforms where I am most often would be Insight Timer because I use the app every day for myself, but I also have recordings on the Insight Timer app. I also started putting YouTube videos of short mindfulness practices on my YouTube channel a few years ago because these were specific practices that my teacher friends asked for. And... So if anybody asks for a specific resource, that's what guides my meditation creation. So I love to hear feedback from people of, I wish I had this type of resource. That's perfect. And we'll put those uh, links in our show notes. And thank you once again, Katrina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Katrina. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. As we look ahead to our next episode, we have Louise Gill, a mindfulness instructor who is going to talk to us about the sacred pause, lessons from Zen masters Thich Nhat Hanh, emotional intelligence, and what happens when you bring the mindset of curiosity to each moment.